0: Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics. This is the Bellatour Christie Podcast brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evolo, as we step into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina and Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie podcast and we welcome you uh, for a special summer interview series uh, here on the Bellator Christie podcast. And we have some tremendous guests with us today. We'll be introducing them here in just a few moments. Uh, we want to have a quick moment to remind you that season six of of the Bellator Christie Podcast begins uh, Thursday, September 22nd, so be sure to look for uh, Season 6 uh, on any, any place where podcasts are found, and you can also catch it on bellatorchristi.com. Uh, so we're going to want to jump right into this because we have a fascinating discussion today. Our summer interview series is on creationism, and today we're especially talking about the conversation is genesis historical and uh, we've got a couple great guests uh, on tap uh, for today so first and foremost let's welcome on curtis the man who needs no introduction mr curtis Evalo. how are you doing brother
1: hey uh, doing good it's been a, it's been a little while since we've been behind the mic here so um i hope uh, all the listeners uh this uh, this mic finds everybody well and uh and I just hope that uh, everybody was able to get away and enjoy some time and and be able to do. We've been uh, I've, we've been certainly busy around the ranch, so um, <laughs> I could I could always use an extra hour of daylight, no matter what day, what year it is, or what time of year it is.
0: Absolutely, and so we're we're excited to to get back on the air, and obviously we've got uh, season six uh, quickly approaching. It's hard to believe it's almost September. That just doesn't even sound right. Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah
1: and you're and you're getting pretty close need some uh some focused prayer on some uh on some dissertation defending your dissertation and and such correct
0: yes all, if all goes well all goes well um Hopefully before Christmas, I think that's the game plan. At least that's what I was told. So yeah, they're wow. certainly keep me in prayers. I did have something a little odd. and don't something funny happened that uh, there was a little cross up at the university where they thought I was an international student and uh, needed to take more hours so that I wouldn't be deported. And so I uh, had I had my dissertation chair contact the office to assure them that even though I talk funny here in North Carolina, uh, that I'm not an international student. <laughs> So, but but the scariest thing of it all is that my wife was asking if she could choose the location to which I was deported, and she was thinking somewhere along the lines of <laughs> yeah. Siberia. Uh, so pray, pray for <laughs> me. <laughs> it makes
1: makes it a little bit concerning, huh?
0: Very much so. <laughs> Well, let's 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 jump into this. We have two wonderful guests, and we want to get right to this. Uh, our podcast, just so you know, will probably uh, go into two episodes today because we have a lot of content to cover. We want to welcome on with us two amazing guests. First of all, we want to welcome on Dr. Todd Wood. He has a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Virginia. Uh, go Cavaliers! He's the founder and president of Core Academy of Science, a research and educational organization devoted to nurturing the next generation of faithful, Christ like creation researchers to explore the hardest problems in creation. He's the author of The Quest, Exploring Creation's Hardest Problems, and maintains a popular blog called Todd's Blog. He is a co host of the podcast, Let's Talk Creation. Uh, We also have on with us uh, Paul Garner, who has a Master of Science. Uh, He's a full-time researcher and lecturer for Biblical Creation Trust. Uh, He has a Master of Science in Geoscience from the University College in London, where he specialized in paleobiology. Uh, He is a fellow of the Geological Society of London and a member of several other scientific societies. His first book, The New Creationism, Building Scientific Theories on a Biblical Foundation, and the new book, Fossils and the Flood. He's a co-host of the podcast, Let's Talk Creation. So without further ado, let's welcome on Dr. Todd Wood and Mr. Paul Garner. Thank you guys for being on with us. Yeah, thank you
2: for having us. Great to be here.
0: So we're going to jump right into this, and I don't know uh, how we want to do this. If one person wants to take one question and the other follow up, or uh, I'm just going to let you guys be the guide on that. Uh, Let's let's jump right into this. So first and foremost, as we're talking about, is Genesis historical? uh, Let's first ask the question, what reasons do we have to believe that God created the universe as we know it?
2: Do you want me to kick off, Todd? Sure, yeah, kick off. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, yeah, w- when people ask me that, you know, what, why should we believe that God uh, made everything? Um, my answer is always the Bible. Uh, the Bible's the best reason. <laughs> it's Absolutely. God's inspired and inerrant revelation to us. Um, it's by faith that we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, as it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Um it's because of the Bible that we know that God made everything in six days and uh, that's embedded uh, right in the heart of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, you know, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and uh, rested on the seventh day. And uh, so for me, that, that's the very best reason to uh, believe in creation because uh, God says it. Um, having said that, it doesn't mean, I think, that uh, our faith in what God has said is divorced from our reason. There, There's scientific and historical evidence that we can uh, look to that confirms what the Bible says. But ultimately, our reason has to be obedient to the word of God. Um, we, we don't reason about science or anything else uh, in an autonomous way. Um We affirm what God has said in the Bible, and as creationists, we then go to the scientific evidence and seek to interpret that evidence in the light then of of what the the Scripture says. And uh, I think if we we don't do that, if we uh, seek to reason autonomously about uh, the scientific data, we're very likely, I think, to go astray, um, because God has... um, revealed to us things that we couldn't possibly know uh, through scientific means. and so that has to be the the kind of framework in which we then think about the science. and if we if we if our thinking is unconstrained by what the Bible says, then um we could come up with all kinds of interpretations of the scientific data and they might be very reasonable interpretations mm. uh, but ultimately they would be wrong because they're not actually taking into account the things that God has God has revealed to us in scripture so I think that would be that would be my first answer is we believe in creation because the bible tells us that that's that's what happens yeah
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I would I would second that for sure <clears throat> and I would say you know for, to add a layer to that is my own personal experience with God himself right it's mm. not simply that I have some abstract book that somebody told me is God's Word, and um, I just sort of blindly accept it. It's that I have experienced His work in my life, I have seen what He does, Mm -hmm. I have heard His voice speaking to me through Scripture, and sometimes that's a pleasant experience, and sometimes it's not, right? <laughs> yeah. Lots of people think, oh, I, I've had a word from the Lord and it's a warm, fuzzy thing. And yeah. th- those are nice. But when God tells you to do something you really don't want to do and he won't let you alone,
0: <laughs> oh
1: yeah, then
3: you realize, oh, yeah, maybe there's something more to this because I don't want to do that, but he won't leave me alone.
0: I call those divine impressions thing, so. is, You know, where, where God uh, impresses upon your heart to do something and you you want to try to forget about it, but he won't let you.
3: <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. And he keeps hounding at you. Yeah. And so so those those are some of the things that, that you know speak to me that this this Bible that I read is not just some weird old book written by sheep herders, mm. <laughs> Bronze yeah. Age sheep herders or whatever. Right. This is something quite special and quite remarkable um and then to add to the second part of what paul said the rationality issue what i find the most exciting and the most thrilling and the most astonishing and i shouldn't but i do is that creationism works and this is something that is that's the hallmark of good science right if you have good science you have a good fruitful theory a good fruitful idea and you go out and you test it in the field or you test it in the lab and you come up with new ideas, new angles to, to look at things and continue to produce more and more results that are consistent or that correct your theories, whatever. Um, that's what science is and mm-hmm. that's what creationism does all the time and like I say I, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed because it tells me that I don't really have faith or <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have enough faith, right? That you know when God says, "I created the world in six days and and, and there, was, there was a global flood, He really means that. and if you go looking for it, you will find it. It's yeah, out there right. and so so it it's both exciting to me and a constant uh, a constant uh, area of of um, uh, conviction in my life that uh, my faith needs to grow, right? I believe, yeah. help my unbelief. yeah and so out from out from the throne of grace comes all of this marvelous science and and i think oh yeah okay Mm. thank you (laughs) that's going to help my unbelief but but the first step of course is that you know we those that come to god must must believe that he is right we have to start with that that step of faith and god rewards that every step of
2: the way so yeah Mm. yeah taste and see that the lord is good yeah and and (laughs) todd's absolutely right you know that one of the most exciting things, I think, about being a creationist is that we can go out and we can we can look at the physical and biological data, and we find that um, we can make sense of it. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we can actually begin to interpret it and, and make sense of what we see, and we can construct uh, theories that are productive uh, theories and that help us to explain data make new discoveries make testable predictions that then can you know uh, inform further scientific work all of that as a scientist is tremendously exciting and uh yeah it's that productiveness that fruitfulness of creationism as a as a paradigm is one of the things that really uh i i find most exciting about it
1: that's awesome yeah amazing it's it's um when you guys both are um involved in 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 uh maybe uh digging into some scientific information and you run into a little bit of a little bit of a you could say a roadblock it it, that doesn't necessarily create a hurdle but it creates a point for you to go back and 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 actually ask okay what do we see here and how can we uh, put it into into what we understand? So, how do you guys do that? How do you guys how do you guys see those types of um, struggles?
3: Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I should have warned you. Curtis uh, has yeah. some really good questions. <laughs>
3: That's, that's yeah, a, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: a very good question. Uh,
3: I don't, I don't know. There's a formula to it. Sometimes, yeah. <clears throat> sometimes, like most scientists, you do really good work in the shower, right? And so, <laughs> Archimedes, Eureka, <Chattanooga, laughs> and there it is. There's something about there. There's nothing to do but think, right? And So <laughs> yeah. you come up with ideas, and sometimes. Sometimes good ideas are born in community, right? So I'm talking to somebody else who is not yeah. in my field, and they say, well, have you thought about this? And I think, no, I can't. All right, well, wait a minute. Let me, let me go back <laughs> and think about that again.
2: Damn, Sometimes yeah. it's
3: my students who ask me questions. Do you think we could test X? And I say, no, well, all right, hmm. Yeah, we could probably test that. Yeah, we could probably and then and then the next thing you know, the next twenty minutes, we're hatching a a new a new set of experiments (laughs) we want to do. Yeah, and sometimes it's about you know looking at what all the other scientists tell you, what the conventional scientists tell you. Sure. And thinking about all right, let's turn it upside down and think of it in the opposite direction. Um, and that's another thing that I think makes creationism so fun is the, the stuff we're coming up with in the conventional view is complete Looney Tunes. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no way. <laughs> right. The earth is the earth, we're told, is four and a half billion years old. It's not six thousand years old. There's no <laughs> way. That's crazy. This rock layer here, this was made in a desert. It couldn't have been made in a flood. That's nuts. These fossils clearly show a smooth <laughs> transition from ape to human. They can't possibly show anything else. That's crazy. Yeah. And all of the things, you know, every yeah. time they tell you that's crazy, you gotta sort of turn it upside down and go, Well, how do we know that? Yeah. And and what do, how can we how can we evaluate that? Because mm-hmm. it's those those sort of sacred cows, those big paradigms. Yeah. issues in science that are they're just the, they're the most resilient and they're the most stubborn and they're the most full of of uh they're they're, they're very uh commonly held with very uncritical reasons right oh yeah sure. those issues you know origin of species was 1859 that's 160 years ago We don't need to think about why evolution is true anymore. And so I found myself in graduate school oftentimes explaining evolution to my fellow students, which is the weirdest sensation, let me tell you. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's a tough thing to sort of think creatively and think deeply and, and think long and hard about how we go about evaluating these things and and where have we gone wrong and what's the possibilities. Mm.
2: Uh, It's tough stuff. And also, I think, um, we can't avoid the hard work of uh, doing exegesis either. You know, we we have to study the biblical text and understand what it actually says, what it doesn't say. You know, what are the constraints on our scientific Mm -hmm. thinking? And, uh, you know, where perhaps have we made assumptions about what the biblical text says that may not actually turn out to be correct. So we have to do that hard work in the biblical text as well. And in fact, we are very encouraged that the last couple of years, um, we have an annual conference in the summer called the origins conference that uh, has been the creation biology society and the creation geology society. But the last couple of years we've been joined by the biblical scholars and theologians too. So the creation theology society has now been established and they're joining us and they they're getting involved in interdisciplinary sessions which are actually helping us you know we, we can we can ask them questions about the biblical text that maybe as biblical scholars they don't even think to ask but because we're interested <laughs> as scientists now they've got new questions you know to ask of the biblical text
1: sure
2: and sometimes they can say to us hang on a minute you guys you know you're you're kind of just assuming this and actually the biblical text says this you know <laughs> um, so, so that also is really, really fruitful in helping us sort of develop these these kinds of models. So we have to mm. think critically. Um, we, we've got to think creatively, um, and we have to do that in both the biblical scholarship and in the scientific scholarship. I, I think and, this, so will, any, this will this will. Can I give you a story on that? Paul?
0: Sure,
3: I <laughs> love this. Uh, I think uh, must have been when I was a student, grad student, maybe. I would spent about twenty minutes with my concordance trying to find the passage that says uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I I felt sure it was in Proverbs, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And finally I went to the internet and it's from Milton and not even in the Bible. So it's, it's, you know, you get these ideas in your head, right? These little, these little mind worms that go in there and you think, Oh yeah, that must be right. And, it takes just stopping, stepping back, and, and sort of examining your, your presupposition to realize, "Oh, oops." <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> kind of like those uh, sayings:
0: uh, "Cleanliness is next to godliness," and God helps yeah, those who yeah, help themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes. before we move on to the second question, I mean, this really stands to me because stands out to me because a lot of times creationists seems to be seem to be. Um, Challenged by evolutionists as being unscientific, but this whole process that you've described sounds very scientific. You start off with a hypothesis and yeah. you're testing that hypothesis, so it's very scientific to the core.
3: Yeah. Yeah, science doesn't care where the hypothesis comes from. Exactly. As long as it's as long as it's a testable hypothesis, it's part of science.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And one of the things yeah. that amuses me endlessly about the creation debate is how people will tell me creationism is by definition not science. Hmm. And now let me give you 5 million reasons from science why creationism has been proven wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: you can't have both
2: of those things. No, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's either it's either scientifically testable or it's not. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, this this is this is absolutely right. I, I think as creationists, um, so much of our methodology is actually exactly the same as our secular colleagues. It's often the questions we're asking of the data that are different. Sure. That, mm-hmm. That's, I mean, obviously. There are other differences too. Um, we're we're not naturalists in the sense that you know we, we accept that there have been times when God has done miracles. You know, He's He's miraculously intervened. Creation yeah. itself, obviously, being a yeah. being in the realm of miracle. Um, but those things are testable because they they have you know if if God made separate kinds, then you can start to ask scientific questions about separate mm. kinds, right So that's mm-hmm. that that's still within the purview of science. But really it's yeah, it's those kinds of questions very often that we're asking that are a bit different. you know we we want to, ask things of the data that perhaps wouldn't even occur to one of our evolutionary colleagues because they're just not asking the same things as us. They're not interested in the same same questions. Um, and I, so I, I think in that sense, you know, creationism can be a, a net positive, right, for science mm. as a whole because we're likely to make discoveries and find things out that maybe our evolutionary colleagues didn't. And maybe that works vice versa too. Maybe they're asking things that we're not asking. And yeah. so, you know, we 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 all should be able to contribute to the overall sum of scientific knowledge together. Um, in practice, yeah. <laughs> how that works out, you know, creationists usually uh you know, most of what we do is is pretty much sidelined and ignored. You know, we're we're a small and uh yeah, we're we're regarded as Todd said as kind of the crazies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we don't make that much a, a, of an impact in that sense, but that's not why we're doing what we're doing. You know, we're doing it for the glory of God. We're yeah, doing absolutely. it because God has told us that, you know, we're we're to have dominion. We're to think God's thoughts after Him. You know, we're to we're to study the creation. Uh, we're to delight in what God has made. Um, and so I think, you know, as creationists, we've got the highest motivation to do science. So yeah. it, uh, there, there is a sense in which, you know, we've just got to live with the fact that they think we're crazy. You know, <laughs> let's, let's just live with it um, and get on mm-hmm. with doing what God has called yeah. us to do. You know, with that that that's our focus. It's God Himself.
1: Yeah, it's funny because uh, I, you know, just in the area I live in. Um, You have, you know, big mountains, mountainous regions, and then you got big wide open plains, and then you got some rolling hills, and and you just got some – the landscape around here is just amazing. And there's areas that you drive to that that if you catch it with your eye, you just say to yourself, I know I'm not crazy, but those look like that could have been some sort of made-by-waves you know, waves of water. You just the way the landscape is and the way it looks and, and the layout of it. And you're just like, okay, I know what I know what the what the traditional paradigm or traditional understanding is, but but God, this is this looks to me like this was recent and it looks to me like it was catastrophic. It it moved a lot of stuff in a quick amount of time. Like when water rushes down a a gully, you know, Um, we see it. We see those kind of things just in the natural, you know, rainwater falling off the edge of a roof of a house and it carves a nice canyon out in your yard. Mm -hmm. Well, that takes what? A millisecond to do? I mean, what if it was (laughs) worldwide, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. those kind of things that catch your eye and you're like, I know I'm not crazy.
0: I just know I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. Well, people, people still ask about whether I'm crazy or not, regardless. But yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> let let, let not me jump. For in. that reason, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Let me jump into the second question. What are the latest findings that give weight uh, to creationism? Yeah.
3: The latest findings. Yeah. Um, Paul, do you want to talk about coconut
2: oil? yeah yeah before i come on to the to, to that specifically i this is a really interesting question it's a question that lots of people ask you know they say you know what's what's the evidence that um supports creationism and i think the tendency of uh, many creationists at that point is to kind of just jump straight to their you know, favorite argument for creation or cool. straight to the latest piece of evidence that they've got excited about. And there, there's a kind of danger in that approach which is I think that it leads us to think in terms of what I call magic bullets. Mm. You know what I mean by magic bullets? It's, it's the one piece of evidence that's going to refute the whole of evolutionary theory and confirm creationism. Right. And you know, in reality, that's, that's just kind of not how these things work. They're, they're much more complex questions than this. There's no one piece of evidence that is, is going to, you know, knock down evolutionary theory or support creationism. I tend to think about uh, this kind of question in terms of what the philosophers of science call consilience. C- consilience is basically the way in which multiple lines of evidence all converge on a single explanation. And if you talk to mainstream scientists about evolutionary theory, that's how they think about evolution. You know, It's not that there's one piece of evidence that, that persuades them of evolution. It's rather that multiple pieces of evidence from many different disciplines, whether it's homology or molecular genetics or biogeography or the fossil record, all of that, all of that evidence as they see it converges on this evolutionary explanation. And perhaps ironically... Um, that's actually the thing that I think gives creationism its uh, heft and weight. It's mm-hmm. exactly the same thing. Sure. It's that it's that consilience of data from multiple disciplines.
0: Yeah. Paul, Paul This um, is a uh, question, re- real quickly. Yeah. So, so if, if I'm understanding consilience, is this kind of like a cumulative case that you're making, taking all the data points leading to one yes. area?
2: Yes, it's it's a kind of cumulative argument. It's to say that, you know, you've got all of these disparate pieces of data which are independent of one another, but they all seem to point in one direction. And when I look at the data, that's kind of how I see the case for creationism. It's not that there's one piece of evidence I can point to and say, that proves, you know, creationism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's rather that creationism, as we were saying earlier, allows us to explain so many different things whether whether we're looking at the kind of deep and multi-layered complexity of living things or whether we're thinking about the profound discontinuities that exist between major groups of living organisms or whether we're thinking about the abrupt appearance of major groups in the fossil record or evidence of global scale catastrophism in the You know, in in the geological record, it's it's all of this data that seems to me uh, to build a kind, as you say, a cumulative, consilient case for creationism. So, yeah, so that's perhaps how I'd a- approach that. Um, there are obviously specific um, specific creationist projects, specific sort of creationist uh, research that's going on that we- that we can talk about. Todd, you mentioned. I uh, yeah, co- I want to co- hear Yeah, Coconino. Talk <laughs> about the
3: Coconino. To me, th- I mean, this is not the most recent stuff, yeah. but it is one of those things, like you say, Paul, with the consilience, uh, Yeah, where it's just one thing after another, and it makes me raise my eyebrows and think, "What is going on there?" <laughs> so, <laughs> so could you? Yeah. So, so maybe I can set the stage, and you can, yeah, get us yeah, the far away. I'll set it up. Okay, so. So the idea here is that there are these, um, these Permian sandstones. So Permian is uh, in the in the geologic column, it's the layer of rock just below uh, where the dinosaurs show up, uh, Triassic. It is, uh, there's this big old um, thick sandstone that runs right through Uh, close to the top of Grand Canyon. If you go to Grand Canyon, or you look at pictures of Grand Canyon, you'll see this, you'll see near the top, you'll see a kind of a white stripe that is the Coconino. Um, And for years, it has been unquestionably accepted that the Coconino is a desert sand dune. It's the, it's the remnant of a giant desert. And because there are Permian sandstones like the Coconino found all around the world. The assumption is that the, the land, the continent, uh, was um, a desert at that time. So just one big vast desert back then in millions of years ago. And of <laughs> course, if you think that the flood is responsible for a large portion of the fossil record, the Permian is basically right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And so then the question is, well, how could there be a desert, a global desert in the middle of a global flood? And <laughs> so researchers, and this started. This research started back in the 70s um, with a guy named Leonard Brand who did some real simple experiments because there are footprints in the Coconino. And he just decided, let's test the characteristics of the footprints. And so he got some, um, some lizards, I think, or salamanders, one of the two, and he ran them across some sand and just to see what kind of footprints they would make. And it turned out the best match to those footprints were when the when the critters ran along the bottom, the sandy bottom of a water filled thing. If he if he took a big tank and put sand in it and then filled it with water and it ran the lizards across the bottom of it that's what those footprints look like and so that was our first clue that maybe this desert sandstone story might be a little might be a little off now paul went and participated in this pretty long and involved research project studying um, the Coconino and and i think other permian sandstones you did some that's work right. in, in the uk so yeah. what else did you find
2: Well, as Todd says, Leonard Brand had done this work on the fossil footprints, which began to sort of raise this question, you know, is is the desert story correct? But uh, there were lots of other arguments that are there in the literature uh, that seem to support the idea that this is a desert sandstone, particularly with regard to features of the sandstone itself. Mm. Uh, So, for example, the style of the cross bedding, you get these inclined layers within the sandstone that are meant to be the front face of the advancing dune and you can sort of measure the dips of the 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 dunes uh that the actual um nature of the sand itself the fact that the sand grains in the coconino are said to be um rounded um like those that you find in windblown desert sands uh, rounded and well sorted so they're all basically a uniform size uh the kinds of minerals that you find in the coconino so for example uh, the textbooks say that uh, the sandstone is is mostly quartz, um, but there's no mica. Uh, mica is a very soft uh, mineral, much softer than quartz. And if you have a very harsh abrasive wind uh, wind uh, uh, dominated environment, then the the soft mica minerals just get abraded away. So you know mm-hmm. you you don't find those in the Coconino. And there were a whole host of these kinds of arguments. So I was part of a team led by Dr. John Whitmore, um, geologist at Cedarville University. Uh, we had another colleague, um, Ray Strom, who ran a geological laboratory up in uh, Calgary. And uh, together, we, along with some of John's students and other, other researchers, uh, were funded to study the Coconino. I, we were studying it from, I think, 2007 to 2011, we were going out every summer, we collected hundreds of samples of the Coconino, we looked at the Coconino sandstone in outcrop, you know, wherever we could find it across northern and central Arizona, we looked at other similar sandstones that sort of correlate laterally to it, we even looked at Permian sandstones here in Britain, and basically (laughs) what we found was that we systematically went through all of those textbook arguments. And we found that they were not correct. Um, So, for example, the absence of mica. um, We began. We 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 made hundreds of thin sections uh, where you slice the rock very thin, and you can look at it under a microscope. And in almost every thin section we looked at, we found mica. I mean, it's there. It's not there in large amounts. It's trace amounts, but it's it's there throughout the sandstone from top to bottom and across its outcrop. The sandstone is not well rounded. And not well sorted. Um, it's only moderately um, sorted. It's actually quite angular in in places. Uh, and we kind of went through all of these arguments and found that people, I think, were making assumptions about the nature of the Coconino based on the fact that it was meant to be a desert sandstone. True. Sure. but. Basically the work to confirm those things had never been done. Nobody had really done the kind of systematic um oh. petrographic work looking at thin sections under the microscope that we did. No nobody had done that. Um a famous Grand Canyon geologist called Edwin McKee back in the nineteen thirties had published a monograph on the Coconino and everybody quoted Edwin McKee, you know, everybody sort of cited his work and and um, That was regarded as the standard work on the subject. But in terms of actually going and looking at the sandstone carefully under the microscope, I mean, people just hadn't done it. And we found that um, actually the data, as far as we could see, supported the idea that it had been transported and deposited by water. So we think that it was formed as giant <laughs> sand waves, Ooh. giant sand dunes. And in fact, if you, if you look at the shallow marine shelves in the world today, wherever you have strong tides and a, an abundant supply of sand uh, those shallow marine shelves are covered in these giant sand dunes that are deposited yeah. underwater uh, if if you you know if you go across the english channel uh, you know between uh, britain and, and the netherlands the floor of the english channel is covered in these great sand waves it's one uh, one guy who sort of pioneered uh, the use of sonar uh, in studying the floor of the North Sea said it's like flying over the Namibian desert because <laughs> <laughs> you got these giant sand really? dunes. So that's wow. that's basically uh, you know a, a, a sort of modern analog of how we think that the Coconino might have been deposited during during the flood. Huh. Wow. So there's an example where you know we we're faced with a, a challenge. And we've gone out and said, "Well, let's test it. Let's let's yeah. go and collect some data. Let's go and look at the rocks and see what we find." And actually, the data turned out to correspond rather well with the creationist uh, uh, position. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, when that, you're talking angular, you're talking about the the difference between a wind blown sand dune, which has a certain angle, and then a a, 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 a a sand that's been moved by water, which then has a different angle. I think the water well, the, is is lesser, or or what?
2: Well, when I talked about angular, I'm actually talking about the shape of the sand grains themselves. So oh, whether okay. whether whether they you know whether they have sharp edges or whether whether they're very rounded. Oh, I gotcha. you. Um, but also, uh, we did also measure the angles, or the dip angles of the crossbeds in in the Coconino because typically people think of um, windblown uh, dunes having very st- uh, steep crossbedding and yeah. uh, sand dunes that are deposited underwater as having very shallow uh, cross crossbed dips. Um, it's not strictly true, as it actually turns out. Um, uh, you, can, you can you get quite a range of, of crossbed dips in both uh, water and in desert environments. Yeah, sure. And when we looked at the... Uh, crossbed dips in the Coconino, and we measured, you know, hundreds of crossbed dips, Uh, those crossbed dips and their distribution uh, actually quite closely correspond to what we see in underwater dunes and is actually quite different from what we see in in desert dunes. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, So... Yeah, so, so that's just a, one example of you know, a, a creationist research project that's ongoing. There, there are lots of others. Um, there's been a project going on for about 25 years or, or more now, studying a dinosaur bone bed uh, out in Wyoming that is also extremely yeah. interesting. Some really interesting results coming yeah. from that. Uh, creationists have been studying fossil whales in uh, Peru and uh, finding evidence of rapid uh, burial of these fossil whales Uh, and I'm sure you know there are lots of others that we could talk about in fact on our podcast we're doing a series at the moment called great discoveries in creation research where we're inviting on you know a number of creationist researchers to come and talk to us about the 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 work that they're doing and um, try, try to Try to spread the word about it, and, and so that people can hear more about some of these really exciting things that are going on.
0: Well, one quick question for you before we move on to the next for the, to our next uh, topic: uh, Have you found any evidence that uh, shows that human beings had interactions with dinosaurs? Because it's it's funny because th- you know we see these Jurassic Park movies coming out, and don't tell me the other day if you if you look at some <laughs> of the drawings of these mythical dragons they uh, in in uh, you know even some older cultures it seems like it seems very comparable and similar to a T-Rex or an animal like that uh so have you found any 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 evidence that uh, humans uh, were around in the time of the dinosaurs or vice versa no <laughs> <laughs>
1: let's make that that? Real quick okay you know? <laughs> um,
3: that it, it is one of the enduring kind of mysteries is that, mm-hmm. that the vast majority of flood deposit material has nothing human or cultural in it at all mm-hmm. um, so that is a that is a genuine puzzle. We think it has to do with geography, but mm. other than that, you know people just lived in different places
0: oh, that makes um, sense,
3: yeah, before the flood, so when the yeah. flood came along and buried things, the people. Uh, I don't know enough about geology and stuff, but the people were living in a place that was not. They were basically being washed out to sea, or maybe they uh, somehow they were not being buried, um, or maybe there weren't enough of them.
0: So there was no interaction so, between because you know I've, I've heard people argue I on both sides of that, but I, I just kind of curious to see.
3: We don't know if there was interaction. Right. There could have been. Um, they were contemporaries, right? Mm-hmm. They lived at the same time. What we find, however, is that most of the sorts of arguments that people have given for those things always sort of come up with far too many questions so than mm. they come up with real, mm. um, with real yeah. conclusive results, and so I'm left going, uh, uh, anything conclusive? No, right? Um, yeah, I'm not. I think sure so- that they're suggested, but anyway.
2: Yeah, so some of those things, you know. <sighs> I think we have to be so careful because there have there have been some kind of um, yeah some kind of dead ends where you know people have followed these kinds of evidences. There was there was the classic case back in the seventies of uh, the so called human tracks that were found alongside dinosaur tracks in the bed of the Paluxy River in Texas, and I think you know mo- most uh, people are agreed now that. Uh, there aren't any human tracks in in the Paluxy River deposits. Um, there were there was some carving going on back in the <laughs> the Great Depression. People <laughs> yeah. made some money by selling carvings. There are also um, there are also these really uh, elongate dinosaur tracks where the mud has kind of fallen in and obscured the, the the toes of the dinosaur at the front, so they kind of look a bit sort of human shaped, but um, but they're they're basically poorly preserved dinosaur tracks and Mm. that kind of thing so so i think we have to be careful about that you know maybe you look at you look at the ubiquity of of dragon legends you know in all all cultures and maybe that's suggestive of you know human memories but i i I don't think we can kind of hang too much on those kinds of arguments Mm. and as todd says we don't we don't have any fossils of pre-flood humans um we we don't have them alongside dinosaurs or anything else. We just don't have any pre-flood humans at all preserved in the record. All of the human fossils that we have are basically in post-flood uh, contexts. So, That's good. Uh, yeah, uh,
0: very very interesting.
2: So, I
0: gotta I gotta ask this question because this has come up in popular parlance about the historical uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, Do we have reasons to believe that Adam and Eve were historical individuals and not mythological creations?
2: That sounds like a question for Todd, because I know Todd has (laughs) done lots and lots of... Todd has done lots of thinking about um, human origins, and so it's probably...
3: Well, probably you uh, should
2: start us off on this, Todd.
3: Yeah, uh, so I'm going to take my, again, I'm going to take my uh, beginning at, in Scripture um, hand. Yeah, I mean, Paul's discussion, the Apostle Paul's discussion, not, not you, Paul, but the <laughs> Apostle Paul's discussion uh, in in Romans 5 and, and 1 Corinthians, um, where he repeats it. I mean, this is... This is clearly an important thing for him that he is drawing this analogy between the sin of Adam and the, and the, and the sacrifice of Christ, the, the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ. And um, through uh, one man's sin, um, death came into the world, right? And, and then through one man's obedience, um, he brings life. And it's pretty clear... He's drawing that that line between <laughs> Jesus' bodily resurrection and the bodily death brought on by Adam's sin. It's kind of inevitable. So, So you put that together, and yeah, I think you have a very clear, deep, deep theological reason that Adam mm-hmm. must have lived. We can't do without him. And in that respect, I think also we can't do without his story right um it's not that we could just say well maybe adam was a chieftain who you know was the first human being in the line of human beings and he got into a relationship with god and that's you know no 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 no, no. adam was created created and Mm -hmm. fell and that fall brought sin and the curse of death that was lifted by jesus resurrection that's the teachings of the apostle paul on that matter so, so for those reasons, I'm thinking, no, it's not, it's not just that there was a historical Adam. And it's not just that, that he, he might have been a person near the beginning of humanity. He, he is what the Bible describes. Eve is the mother of all living. She's the first woman. Uh, Adam and Eve are from the beginning of creation, uh, as Jesus himself said. Um, from the beginning they God made them male and female uh, and um, so yeah so there's where I would begin right these people existed and they are that they are the forefathers they are the the, the forefather and the foremother of um, all of humanity everybody who is human uh, traces their lineage back to those two um, now beyond that then we have an array oh goodness we have a dizzying array and and the, and, the, <laughs> and the, the scary bit about this is that we have all these we have all these scientists out there generating just more data than any normal human being could ever process in a, in a lifetime um all under the paradigm of evolution and so of course what they're going to tell us is they're you know there's overwhelming evidence of evolution, because that's what we've been looking for. And there's, um, there's clear evidence that we never uh, came from a, a pair of, you know, a single pair of ancestors in the recent past. Well, yeah, if you, if you take all the evolutionary assumptions that you're feeding into that statement, that's true. But if you don't take those assumptions, well, then, then it's kind of open to, it's kind of open to more exploration, more. Uh, Investigation, Um, and I don't want to say that it's all confirmation bias. Uh, There are things there are things in the evidential record that are surprising and kind of weird, um, particularly in the fossil record. Uh, Things that I would not have expected in my naive assumption about maybe how God creates.
0: Um, What 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 would be some of those things as an example, if if you don't mind
3: homo erectus <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean there's a, there's a good example I would never guess that you would have uh you know just from what we have today I would never have guessed that there would be human beings with with brains that are you know thousand or eight hundred cc's and that's put that into perspective that's like sixty percent of the size of our brains uh and that seems to be normal for them um never would have guessed that never never would have expected that um, and i think maybe that's just because i'm naive and i just ha- have a poor view of god's creation uh and when you get a larger view and you realize the sorts of diversity that we see in creation then it doesn't become all that surprising there are people who look different than i do yeah um, yeah so so as far as evidence goes, I think the, the overwhelming slam dunk is good grief. Everything in Christian theology uh, is, is explained. I mean, not everything, but the central core of Christian theology, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is explained in terms of the first chapters of Genesis. Um, right. And that's just, you can't start monkeying around with those to use a pun, Uh, you can't start monkeying around with those things and expect that Christian theology is going to remain what it is, right? And at some point as you pick away at the fibers that you think are not necessary, the whole whole tapestry is going to come apart, and you're going to be left with a bunch of thread going, oh, oops. Or not. Maybe you'll think that's good. Maybe you'll think it's good that we finally tore apart the Christian theology. I don't know. Uh, But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to just start tugging at threads and trying to figure out what I can get rid of. I'm going to try to be. Uh, I'm going to be try to find what is really important and and, and maintain my faith uh, in those well, things.
0: Real real quick. Real start, quick um, what what yeah. do you, what do you do with other hominids? Do you see them as being divine image bearers, or do you see them as being classified as as uh, Animals of some sort. Well, I mean, what do you do with these other hominids? Excellent question. I... To hear Dr. Wood's compelling answer to this question and to also hear the conclusion of our interview with uh, Dr. Wood and Paul Garner, come back next week for part two of the podcast, Is Genesis Historical? on the Bellator Christie podcast.
1: We here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us. We value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and become a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, soldier so on, on, friends.
0: You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evlo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christi Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons Copyright. All rights reserved. The opinions of our guests are their own and may not reflect the repositions of Bellator Christian Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening to our podcast and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christi Ministries, go to bellatorchristi.com. The Bellator Christi Podcast is coming soon. The sixth season of the Bellator Christi Podcast begins Thursday, September 22nd. This season will feature three theology series. The first will delve into pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? The second series will be on soteriology, looking into the various perspectives on salvation. And this section will handle issues concerning Calvinism, Arminianism, Thomism, and Molinism. The final series will be a second entry into the Theology Proper series as we delve into the knowledge and revelation of God. How do we know that God exists? Has God revealed himself to humanity? If so, in what way? Does God still speak to people? These issues will be covered in a lot more. Additionally, Season 6 marks the first time in podcast history that we will offer a live video interaction with individuals on YouTube and social media. We have a lot of exciting things going on with Season 6. We hope that you'll join us for what should be an amazing ride. Season 6 begins September 22nd at 8 o'clock p.m. And you can find the Bellator Christie podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere that podcasts are found. The Bellator Christie podcast begins September 22nd. We hope to see you there.